is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon, I'm Callie Buchanan. It's a pleasure to have your company this afternoon. I'd really love to hear from you as well. 0487 993 is the number to send me a message. I'd love to know what you're up to today. If you're working the weekend or if you've got a bit of time off, maybe you're setting aside some time to look at your bushfire plan. There's a fair amount of activity around. It'd be worth taking a look at that. Maybe you're preparing for a bit of potential frost towards the weekend. Whatever you're up to, I'd love to hear from you. 0487 993 222 is the number to send me a text message. Before one o'clock today, we're going to check in on a very special shipment that's made its way all the way to the UK. And we'll take a look at carbon neutrality and what the beef industry's ambitions are. That's all still to come on the Queensland Country Hour today. But while we're talking about the beef industry, live cattle exporters are poised for an update on trade to Indonesia, with officials expected to meet once more in Jakarta today. Now, it comes after Prime Minister Anthony Albanese raised the matter with Indonesia's President Joko Widodo on the sidelines of the ASEAN summit yesterday. A spokesman for the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has told the ABC no formal agreement has been reached, but the government is buoyed by positive discussions in recent days. Another meeting between officials is expected to take place later today. Indonesia notified the Australian government it was suspending imports of live cattle from four Australian export facilities on the 30th of July after cattle tested positive for lumpy skin disease after it had arrived in Indonesia. While we're still waiting for the official confirmation of whether or not that ban could be lifted. The Chief Executive of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, Mark Harvey Sutton, says he's keen to see the detail of any potential lifting of that ban, ban, I should say, and what conditions may be placed on resumed trade. I wouldn't want to speculate, but I think uh, one of the key things that was very important going into that meeting that the uh, Chief Vet was having with Indonesian officials yesterday was uh, the, the affirmation that we do not have lumpy skin disease. Uh, I think that was one of the things that was really important to emphasise. And uh, the other issue was it's a technical discussion. So uh, we we have uh, very world-leading uh, scientists here that uh, are experts in disease and they're very confident we didn't have lumpy skin, yet Indonesia were getting positive test results. And we weren't questioning those results either. So there had to be a discussion about what was happening. So um, I'm hopeful uh, that these discussions have shown that uh, there is a way that we can actually cooperate together uh, and give each other comfort uh, around our disease status. Why do you think it, it put this suspension in place on those facilities and the extra regulations and, and restrictions this week when lumpy skin disease was already spreading through the country? No, look, it's a very good question, that one. But, I mean, whenever we export any commodity to any country in the world, we give uh, an affirmation or an attestation that we are free from certain things. So, uh, for instance, for Indonesia, we always had to affirm that we were free of lumpy skin disease amongst a range of other things. So when um, uh, testing results started to show that these cattle were testing positive for lumpy skin disease, Indonesia had every right to ask that question. So 
uh, it, it might sound uh, odd in, in one sense, but Indonesia is quite within its rights to do that, uh, it, whether it has the disease or not, because that's the condition that we have agreed to undertake trade with them on. I guess we just have to wait, await that confirmation from the Australian government as well. And we have put in that request with the Australian government. Hopefully we'll be able to bring you that confirmation. Um, but it has been about a month or more than a month, actually, um, for those four export facilities in the north of Australia who have been suspended from exporting to Indonesia. Uh, Mark, what cost has that suspension had on industry, do you see? Look, it's, it's difficult to put a cost amount on it. I don't think those numbers have been calculated. But it's fair to say that... Uh, it created a huge amount of uncertainty uh, within the industry. And as, as with any business, uh, businesses are based on confidence. So uh, that did make things a bit tough. And, and then in addition to that, I think uh, what you see is a lack of confidence in buying cattle and uh, the ability to move cattle. And, you know, this is an important time for producers where they're looking to turn off cattle. So uh, they had to weigh up those business decisions. So it's been very very concerning for those people making those decisions. So hopefully, hopefully this uh, this report that you're referencing uh, is accurate uh, and, and we might have a bit of a pathway forward here. What about the cost on the relationship between exporters, cattle producers and Australia and Indonesia more broadly? Oh, look, it's, Australia and Indonesia has a really long and solid working relationship. We, we've had our ups and downs, there's no doubt, and I'm sure everyone can... Uh, attest to that but uh, look this is normal this is a normal discussion to happen between two countries Uh, technical market access issues are a normal thing in trade Uh, this one obviously uh, uh, created a lot of concern but I cannot emphasize enough that this is a normal thing to occur Uh, these discussions had to happen it sounds like the correct process has been adhered to uh, in addressing them where we've had a good government to government discussion Uh, And hopefully some resolution has been uh, brought forward there. What does this mean for industry to have the suspension of of those four export facilities and and the remaining three that had the extra restrictions uh, lifted? What does it mean? Uh, Well, it'd be a tremendous relief in the first instance. Uh, The next thing would just be to understand exactly what uh, these conditions are. Uh, But assuming they are uh, workable as well, uh, I think the relief would be quite palpable across the industry because uh, it's a time that we normally send quite a few cattle to Indonesia and, as I said, producers are always looking to get get cattle off around this time of year. So uh, I think I might hear a big collective sigh of relief across the north if it's, uh, if it's confirmed. That's Chief Executive of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, Mark Harvey Sutton, speaking with Michelle Stanley. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 12 past 12. Now, back in 2017, Meat and Livestock Australia launched an ambitious target for Australia's red meat industry to be carbon neutral by 2030. MLA has since spent about $200 million to help industry reach that target. But now, Australia's peak body for grass-fed cattle producers is calling for a major rethink. Cattle Australia wants the beef industry to focus on becoming climate neutral, not carbon neutral, arguing that methane emissions are vastly different to fossil fuel emissions. Matt Brand spoke to Cattle Australia's now interim chief executive, Adam Coffey, about why the organisation has a beef with MLA's plan. 
you know, we've received a push from our member producers that they essentially want recognition that, you know, emissions from, from grass-fed, from the grass-fed beef cattle sector are not the same as, say, fossil fuel emissions. It's, it's a pretty simple notion that our emissions are cyclical in nature um, and, and they're not the same as something that's been dug out of the ground and stored for millennia and, and, and pumped into the atmosphere. So, oh, look, I'm happy to get into detail with you, but I guess the trouble is at the moment that, that, that the current uh, methodology that, a, that an initiative and a target like CN30 sits on uh, is, is based on the premise of, of CO2 equivalency. So, um, and modern science, there's, there's an understanding in modern science, climate science that uh, particularly in relation to short-term gases like methane, that the CO2 equivalency metric doesn't necessarily add up. So Cattle Australia pushing for a target of being climate neutral compared to carbon neutral. Is it easy to explain what the difference is? So um, essentially, and, and I've touched on, I guess, some of the basics around it, essentially they, they do sit under different greenhouse gas accounting metrics. And I don't think we need to get into the detail of those metrics today, uh, but I'm happy to talk to anyone who's got any questions around that. Um, carbon neutrality is basically, it basically means that we have to offset all of the gases that are emitted from our cattle. Uh, so early days of CN30, um, you know, the CSIRO and others put a lot of research into working out what came out of a cow and they, you know, they stuck a cow in a glass box and basically measured, you know, fed her a ration and, and measured what came out. And, and, uh, and I guess that's headed us, us off down this path to basically um, mitigate everything that's, that's coming out of her. What carbon neutrality and the metric that sits, sits under it doesn't take into account is, I guess, um, carbon dioxide exists in the atmosphere for, for thousands of years. Methane is in the atmosphere for a relatively short period, sort of 10 to 12 years. So in reality, uh, you know, cow eats grass, cow burps, uh, there's a little bit from sort of dung emissions, but most of it comes out of the front end. Um, that methane lives in the atmosphere for 10 or 12 years, and then it's oxidised back into carbon dioxide through a natural, um, natural sort of reactive process in the atmosphere. So that carbon dioxide is then re-sequestered by plants um, and, and the cycle continues. Now, I'm not saying that's absolute and there are sort of, um, you know, differences in different production systems around what can be recaptured and, and what can't. But essentially, uh, a climate neutrality metric, um, the metric that it sits under recognises that fact that uh, stable herd numbers um, don't actually increase warming because methane is breaking down at the same time that it's created. Uh, and, that, and that's a really important part here. And Adam Coffey, I guess with Cattle Australia, are you worried this might be viewed as the beef industry trying to get out of, uh, you know, doing the best thing by the planet? Look, I think we've been trying to be really clear that that's not the case and we don't want that to be perceived as being the case. Um, a big concern with the carbon neutrality target, as I said, is number one, it's not achievable, but number two, it's not applicable, Matt. Uh, you know, we, we want recognition of the cyclical nature of what we do. Uh, and I, I really, um, you know, someone said to me the other day that, you know, how are you going to sell this to consumers? And clearly in Brad's report, it actually indicates that we'll reach a point not too far, not too far off, I think, 2026, the grass-fed red meat sector, where we're not contributing to, uh, you know, global warming anymore. So we have a product that uh, we can sell to a consumer um, that effectively says that. And then beyond that point, we can say we're actually helping and we're sequestering more carbon than we're emitting. So the initiatives that we've had under CN30, uh, they don't necessarily need to change. And we want to see aggressive investment in this space, but we want to see it done, I guess, under the right context and for the right reasons, not um, perpetuating a, a myth, to be, to be quite frank. It's been about a week since this was flagged by Cattle Australia. Has there been any direct feedback? 
Adam Coffey? Yeah, look, I guess, you know, to be, to be blunt, Matt, we've, we've ruffled a few feathers, but um, our position isn't a new one. Uh, we are a new organisation, and this is something that we've been discussing, I guess, um, almost when we, since when we started. Uh, and, and the fact that we're a new organisation, we've, we've sort of got a bit of a, a period here where we have a right to review, you know, frameworks that we've, I guess, we've inherited. Um, so we're a little bit, we're a little bit unapologetic about going hard on, on an issue that's so important to grass-fed um, cattle producers. And the other side is we don't actually think it's, it hurts to have this discussion and this debate in a, in a more open manner. Uh, importantly, you can gauge how much support there is out there for this. And, and secondly, it's, it's, uh, I guess there's no second guessing as to what we're doing as a representative body and how we wish to, to represent people and they know exactly what we're up to. That's Adam Coffey, the Interim Chief Executive of Cattle Australia, speaking with Matt Brand. Do you have a view to share on that? 0487993222. Is it time to rethink CM30 for the cattle industry or is this semantics? I'd love to hear your views. 0487993222. You can send me a text message. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. We'll check in with the Weather Bureau in about 15 minutes' time. And we're also going to take a bit of a look at a very special shipment that has arrived in the UK from Australia. That's before half past 12. Now, Queensland is home to more feral goats than any other state. So it's no surprise, really, that producers remain concerned about the practicalities of the introduction of mandatory electronic identification, or EID tags, in January. By January 1st, 2025, all sheep and farmed goats born on or after that date will need to be tagged with an EID before they leave their property of birth. And by 2027... All sheep and farmed goats will need to be tagged with an EID if they're moved from their property of residence. But goat producers say they're unable to keep regular tags on their goats, let alone an EID tag. Stephen Tully is the president of AgForce's Sheep, Wool and Goat Board. He says there needs to be more understanding from the government about the practicality of the tags. The, the problem we have with goat retention tags is that we don't have a lot of data. So if someone's got some real data of what their losses are over what period of time, um, we need to know. So get in contact with AgForce. We will sort that, uh, we'll push that data forward uh, because there is serious tag retention issues. Back when these tags were certified, there wasn't a rangeland goat industry, so it was very hard to judge. Um, again, to get a tag retention trial on a goat, you need the tags in the ears for three years. Not many people keep their goats for three years for a tag retention trial, so there's a lot of issues there. But look, all indications are that those tags at free swing, so they're not not fold-over tags, tend to have better retention rates with goats um, than the fold-over tags. So there's a few little issues like that. We need to get the word out and need to get those things fixed. Um, And there's a lot of other things in there that we're dealing with. I've got meetings, three meetings in the next two weeks about this issue that we're trying to get it finalised, we're trying to push it through. Um, all lambs will have to be tagged by the 1st of January 2025. I can say that. Um, I'll be tagging my weenie ewes in the lamb crony cradle this year, no, no matter what, depending on what the government comes up with, is whether I'll tag those weather, weather lambs as well. So that's sort of where we are at the moment. We're working through the business rules to make sure that we're not the only ones lumped with that, that, that the responsibilities for the meatworks and everyone else is also locked up in that and we can get real data feedback from the processes as well so yeah what advice would you give to people that still are a little bit unsure about what all this means 
From the 1st of January 2025, all farm goats and sheep, lambs, will have to be tagged. Kids and lambs will have to be tagged. After that, we're still in negotiations. Um, it may be from 2027 onwards we have to tag the rest of them, but we're still pushing in for exemptions or pathways direct to works for those those sheep uh, and goats born on works on, on property where there's no traceability issues going direct to works. But from the 1st of January 2025, all lambs and kids, farm kids, will have to be uh, tagged. We have submitted in the exemptions for rangeland goats and the definition of rangeland goats is reasonably acceptable where if you have a managed, pro- managed breeding program or a, or a veterinary or chemical treatment that they, they then become managed um, but they should have that pathway to go to director works and both of those systems can operate on within the one property so if you've got the big range mob of feral billies coming in from out the back they can go director works uh, without being tagged. That's, that is, has been agreed to by all the states. And just jumping back to the tag retention stuff you were saying, like obviously you're a goat producer yourself, so you know firsthand how difficult it is to keep a tag in the ear of a goat. And anyone else that has goats running around on their property would know that as well. How do we get that information to the people that are making these decisions to say, look, this isn't practical for the operation that people are running, and what is a better option maybe to make this work? Well, that, that's where Agforce, that's, we're the sole ones in that area at the moment and we're all producers on that board and uh, most of us are goat producers and we're continuously telling people that all the time. Um, some of those people lived in pretend bubbles and they don't understand that. But, you know, as I say, you, if you've got a big line of dorpy ewes that are six-year-old and you've got to tag them to go to the meatworks, someone's going to get very, very cranky and uh, there'll be some invites for some ministers to come out and give them a hand. And, you know, it's just it's just stupidity. It doesn't achieve anything. You could put those same tags in the truck and drive to the meatworks. The traceability would be exactly the same. So we're there pushing those common sense outcomes that we can live with. We don't necessarily like them all, but we're pushing strongly for the ones that we can live with. Stephen Tully, sheep and goat producer and president of Ag Force's Sheep, Wool and Goat Board, speaking with Madeline McCosker. If you've got any concerns around EIDs or any experience uh, trying to tag goats with them, 0487993222. If you'd like to send me a text message, maybe you've got a bit of advice you could share. I'd love to hear it, 0487993222. Now, already more than $7 billion has been spent trying to increase the amount of water going into the Murray-Darling Basin system to stop its decline. But a new study from the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists has found that water is not getting where it's needed, leaving further deterioration likely. Here's National Environment reporter Michael Slezak. This is a song about my people's connection to the river. Barkindji man and musician Leroy Johnson feels a connection to the Darling River, or Barker, stretching back thousands of years. When fish died in their millions in 2019, he worried about the future and his people's very existence. So Barkindji translates to belonging to the river. So if there's nothing, if there's no river, there's nothing to belong to, and, you know, that means Barkindji ceases to exist along with the Barker. No Barker, no More than $7 billion have been spent to get more water flowing in a way that would improve the environment. But now a scientific study suggests that hasn't happened. In fact, things are getting worse. 
Dr Celine Steinfeld and the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists looked at whether the minimum flows governments deemed necessary to sustain environments in the basin are being met. Just under a third of the flow requirements were being met and if you focus specifically on the last 10 years, just over a quarter of the environmental flow requirements were being met. And co-author Professor Richard Kingsford from the University of New South Wales says that means river health will keep declining. We'll lose floodplain forests, you know, red gum forests will die and we need to get better at looking after our native fish populations, but we could probably see them declining. The scientists say these minimum flow requirements, called environmental water requirements, or EWRs, have been painstakingly determined by state governments using the best available science. But they say those requirements haven't been properly implemented. That will require changes to access rules in some of those basins to protect high priority flows. The idea is that irrigators would be banned from taking water until these minimum flows are met. But Chief Executive of the New South Wales Irrigators Council Claire Miller says that would spell disaster for communities. You will shut down irrigated agriculture across the basin and that's eight billion dollars worth of uh, production. Most of that money actually goes back into the local communities where the irrigators are. That provides the jobs, it provides the population, it keeps the schools open, keeps the footy club going, keeps the local store open. So it's a societal judgment call here. Are we good with that? Celine Steinfeld from the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists agrees there are choices to be made, but says that needs weighing against damage to the environment. If we form the view that we can compromise those ecosystems, we need to be upfront about those decisions and manage the consequences of that. Consequences Leroy Johnson from the Barkindji Native Title Group wants to avoid. Once the environment is taken care of, then we can look at what's left over to grow crops that make people money. Leroy Johnson from the Barkindji Native Title Group ending that report from Michael Slazak. Of course, that's all in the context of the Albanese government attempting to make those changes to the Murray-Darling Basin plan that it does not seem to have the numbers yet. We'll keep across that issue for you as it develops. It's 27 past 12. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. Australia's first shipment of tariff-free raw sugar exported to the United Kingdom in 50 years has arrived in London. It set sail from the port of Townsville in July under the new Australia-UK Free Trade Agreement. Mark Hampson, the General Manager of QSL Marketing, is on the River Thames at the east end of London, where the sugar has arrived at the Tate and Lyle Sugar Refinery. He tells Lucy Cooper it's a momentous occasion. The vessel's arrived, it's, it's been tied up on the berth and it's getting ready to discharge as we speak. Uh, it's the first shipment under the new Australian-UK Free Trade Agreement. Uh, it set sail from Townsville um, back in on the 10th of July and uh, it's the first vessel we've sent here in over 50 years and, and the first uh, since the new trade agreement came into place. We were at the wharf when it left Townsville and it was very exciting. I've never seen so many people so excited about sugar. Why does the UK want our Australian sugar? What sets us apart from the world? I think it's twofold. We we, we produce a, an incredibly consistent and high quality product, which many of the refiners in the world are appreciative of. Uh, and we've got some of the, the best 
uh, traceability and, and sustainable uh, production credentials in the world. There was a tariff placed on sugar previous to this. It was about 64%, incredibly high. From your understanding, from the talks that are happening, from how the industry is really moving forward, do we expect a lot more shipments of Australian sugar to be going to the UK? Or was this just a signal of a good relationship, but that's all they want? No, I think under the uh, under the new trade agreement we have with the UK, uh, the quota of access that we have will increase uh, each year. Um, the the next the next quota year, the the quota allocation will be a hundred thousand tons for for Australia, and we expect we'll do our best to fulfil that quota. Uh, and that quota amount then increases twenty thousand tons each year until twenty thirty one. At the Tate and Lyle sugar refinery where you're at at the moment can you just describe the scene what does it look like yeah it's a a very uh very large and very old refinery um there's a great big sign here that says tate and lyle's been keeping the nation sweet for 140 years um so it's a historic building and um yeah quite uh quite now well known around the world as a as a very large and successful refinery and you kind of touched on it earlier, but is that key thing that Tate and Lyle and really the UK are after is sustainable sugar, which we can offer? So Tate and Lyle Sugar is part of the ASR group. They're the largest cane refiner in the world, and they've certainly made their goals clear about sourcing 100% of their cane sugar um, from sustainable supply chains. You're there on the banks of the River Thames. Is it a perfect coincidence that you just happened to be there as this sugar shipment has has birthed, or did you travel over here specifically for that on behalf of QSL? Uh, it's funny you should ask that, Lucy. We're actually uh, a bit of a coincidence. Um, we've been meeting with some customers in, in Europe uh, earlier in the week, uh, and I happened just to be here to support the Wallabies in the uh, in the World Cup over the, over the weekend, and uh, then we'll head to... India on our way home for a, for a sugar conference there. So it's a bit of a coincidence, um, but we're uh, glad and happy to be here. Mark Hampson, the General Manager of QSL Marketing. Now, the news arrived in Australia via an unlikely source. A happy snapper uploaded a picture of the vessel travelling down the Thames to the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. His name is Andrew Christie. My name is Andrew Christie. I live in East London and I'm fortunate enough to have a flat that overlooks the River Thames. Um, For a job, I work in business as a project manager, mainly doing IT-enabled business change. But as a hobby, which I've done for all my life, I take photographs, mainly of planes and boats, but of other things as well. Because the East End of London and the Royal Docks area in particular has a huge maritime history. It's something that I've sort of taken an interest in over the sort of 10 years or so that I've lived in the area. And one of the major industries that remains here is the Tate and Lyle Sugar Factory. And they still have deliveries of raw sugar brought in by ship. And that's where my interest um, arises in looking at the ships and taking pictures of them. I'm speaking to you because you posted on Twitter a photo of a bulk shipment of sugar coming up the River Thames. And it is, in fact, from where I am based here in Townsville, 
How did you find out about this shipment? As I have a sort of general interest in shipping anyway, I, I do keep an eye out for the um, ships that deliver to Tate and Lyle because they are now some of the largest vessels that come this far up the River Thames into London. Historically, London's docks were quite central or to the heart of London. And as I say, I live in the Royal Docks area. But since the 1980s, with the size of ships increasing and containerization, most of the dock facilities have now moved down further to the estuary. But because Tate and Lyle still attract some of the larger vessels, I tend to keep an eye out for the times of when the next ship's going to arrive and always look from a point of you know, geographical interest where the origin of the ship is because it just, again, reflects the situation that we are a global economy and sea trade is such a huge part of that. And, you know, the ships coming to Tain and Lyle come from Brazil, South Africa, the Caribbean, Fiji, and now, thankfully, added to that list is Australia. And I'd seen a, a press release that had been put out by Tate and Lyle earlier in the year after uh, one of the ministers from Australia and some of the agricultural trade representatives have been over discussing the new opportunities that new trade agreements would bring. So I was sort of expecting at some point, or hoping, that there would be a cargo coming from Australia to rekindle those historic trade routes linking London with Australia and the whole essence of London being built on maritime trade. So, um, as I say, I was sort of hoping that there would be a vessel coming from Australia. So, um, when this week's shipment sort of appeared on the uh, movements list and I saw that its original uh, port of origin was Townsville, that then sort of raised the flag to say, this is an interesting one. Make sure you try and get a good picture of it. Andrew Christie, a hobbyist photographer based on the River Thames, speaking with Lucy Cooper. It's 25 to 1. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Next, you'll hear the latest details from New South Wales and the way that the Varroa infestation is being managed there. And while we're talking about pests, we're going to check in on the situation with prickly acacia before one o'clock as well. And we might see if we can slip out on the uh, the water and, and go fishing too before one o'clock. That's all still to come on the Queensland Country Hour. Right now, though, let's get the latest from the Weather Bureau. Phelan Hennefy is your forecaster on duty. Good afternoon, Phelan. Good afternoon, indeed. Now, we did see quite a few little storms pick up yesterday afternoon. Anything significant in that activity? No, the watch point today will be very much uh, east of a line from about Longreach down to um, Gundawindi. Uh, that's where we got the main the trough line at the moment. It is moving steadily east and it will bring the, the chance of thunderstorms across the more central and southeastern districts as we go into this afternoon and evening. And there is a risk of some severe activity uh, on that system, particularly later this afternoon and evening, especially across areas, you could say, from about Rollingston to Gladstone and then um, south over the, over the central and southeastern districts. So south to these areas at risk as that system moves towards that area during the rest of this afternoon evening. Uh, damaging winds and large hail, the primary risks in the southeast, but a little bit north of that, north of Dal 
probably over parts of this more central districts, perhaps rain also, heavy rainfall, also a risk in the evening period, particularly as the, the potential of storms, if they do kick off, could slow up over parts of the um, central uh, central inland and western wide bays. So, yeah, potentially a bit of activity over the central and southern half of the state today. Further west, though, it's... Um, it's a very much a different picture, cooler, fresher air mass uh, over much of the west and spreading east behind that system uh, during the rest of the day. And, uh, and I think that'll be the theme over the next few days, uh, much cooler across uh, mm. much of the interior and south of the state. And with those cool temperatures coming through, is there that threat of frost firming up through the weekend? Uh, certainly a risk. Anyway, I have some patchy frost there about the southern and southeastern interior, particularly Particularly once we lose the, the, the southerly or southwesterly breezes that follow this system overnight and during tomorrow. So certainly Sunday morning, north speed chill across most of the interior, and particularly that southern and southeastern interior, could get temperatures as low as 2 degrees in some areas. So definitely it'll feel a, a bit more winter-esque, shall we say. Mm-hmm. But fine and sunny, so pretty the, the air mass stabilizing quickly behind the system. Really the shower activity, once the system moves off the coast during, during the early part of tomorrow morning, the shower activity be very much focused really just up on the, the North Tuppel coast. And a couple of fire dangers to keep an eye across the, across the weekend too, I understand. Yeah, indeed. That drier and fresher or that drier and cooler southerly airflow is going to maintain those elevated fire dangers to much of the interior and also in across parts of the southeast as well as, as that those fresher westerlies move towards the coast. Um, so, so worth keeping an eye on, yeah, with that drier airflow across most interior will be, though the temperatures are cooler, yeah, the fire dangers will remain elevated. And I see there is a current marine wind warning as well for parts of the Gulf. Yeah, indeed. Linked to this change as well, we'll have that drier suddenly getting up over the Gulf waters later tonight and during tomorrow. That's going to mean strong wind warnings for the Gulf with those southeasterlies, which will be gusty, particularly during the morning. And we will see the trade flow, the southeasterly trade, strengthen up along the the, um, the north top or the northeast top of the coast as well over the weekend, so that could mean the potential for some marine wind warnings to uh, to ensue for parts of the Gulf or not Gulf, sorry, some parts of the peninsula and the um, the Cooktown waters as well later this week, and could could extend more broadly across parts of the east coast early next week. Sounds like a good reason to have the bureau's webpage bookmarked. Any other features in the charts for us to be across over the next couple of days? Indeed, I, I think that's covered off. I think you've got the storm <laughs> risk across central and southern areas today, but the conditions improve for tomorrow in terms of the storm risk anyway. It's mainly just this afternoon and evening will be the watch point. We'll stay across it. Phelan, thanks for your time on the Queensland Country Hour. My pleasure as always. And as always, you can get your latest emergency information by staying listening to ABC Radio. You can head online to the ABC's emergency page where you can find a national map of all of the latest critical incidents and some advice about what you could do if a if you're looking to prepare for the fire season or maybe you've just moved to part a part of Queensland that you're not familiar with what uh, what the storms are like in that part of this state. So plenty of information online, abc.net.au slash emergency. Storms are violent. Don't get caught out. When a storm hits, be prepared. Never use trees as protection during a storm event. Find a secure, well-anchored shelter. Remember, indoors is always best.
Trees tend to attract lightning. Eucalypts are dangerous as they can drop branches or be blown over. For storm and flood assistance, call the SES on 132 500 and stay tuned to your emergency broadcaster, ABC Radio. Now, as varroa mite continues to spread in New South Wales, the number of infested properties has hit 254. There are growing calls from a number of beekeepers for the response strategy to switch from eradication to management. But it's not just the apiarist industry that's divided. One of the parties on the Consultative Committee on Emergency Plant Pests says there are divided opinions among the 26 parties that form up that committee. The Australian Honeybee Industry Council's Chief Executive, Danny Leferve, told Kim Honan there are divided opinions on what directions the response should take. It's really complex. It's not as simple as just saying, that's it, we're stopping, we're moving on. There's a lot of factors involved in this. There's 26 votes in this, and, and the votes in the CCP are divided. The votes among, amongst the membership base in, in ARBIC and other organisations uh, are divided. We're seeing uh, voices from around Australia in support of continuing, yet we're having uh, real big impacts on beekeepers on the ground. And that's what concerns me the most here is the human factor uh, in this response. So we're seeing a a big voice from around New South Wales to pull up stumps and move on. Uh, And we're trying to navigate all those opinions uh, and come up with the best case scenario or workable solution to move forward. So are there half the industry groups that have withdrawn their support for eradication? Is that what you're suggesting? No, there's a big divide even within the 26 parties about the ability for this response to move forward or not um, and whether it should change direction or not. So there is no clear consensus. There is no clear pathway forward at the moment and we've been madly having uh, meetings. In fact, we've had four or five in the last fortnight to try and get a consensus and find a way forward to move forward with this response in whichever direction it needs to take. Are you aware that anyone has publicly withdrawn their support, though? Uh, No, everyone's legally obliged in the response. The affected parties have all agreed to the response plan, legally obliged to continue uh, in that process. And depending on which way it goes in the future will depend on on how they, they participate. And I guess much the same within the, the beekeeping industry. There's that divide there. There's that you know split. Some beekeepers want to pursue eradication still, while some think it's really time to move to management. I agree. It's an incredibly complex uh, situation we've got ourselves in at the moment. Um, just no clarity, no no clear direction um, from any part of, of industry, government, anything like that. And it's really messy and we're trying to navigate the way through this the best we can to try and get some clarity as quickly as we can. Hence why we've had a number of these emergency national management group meetings to try and get a clear pathway forward so it can be very clear to the beekeepers on the ground what their future holds because I'm acutely aware that they've got no direction and and are really struggling with this whole response at the moment. That's Australian Honeybee Industry Council Chief Executive Danny Leferve speaking to Kim Honan. What's your view? 0487 993 2 Is eradication still possible? Obviously in Queensland we're watching it happen across the border but there are ramifications particularly for Queensland's professional pollinators. I'd like to hear from you this afternoon, 0487 Tackling any pest is not really an easy task, 
When it comes to tackling prickly acacia, it's certainly not a fight for the faint-hearted. But for Desert Channel's Queensland, it's a battle they're finally winning, despite a lack of resources. Three million hectares of the pest have been destroyed and it's won the organisation an award at the Queensland Pest and Weeds Symposium. The DCQ team took out the George N. Batonoff Award for Team Excellence in Weed Management for their Prickly Acacia program. Grace Nakamura spoke to Operations Manager Simon Wiggins about the need for ongoing funding for that project to continue. So we got a we got a, a weed which is covering nearly 22 million hectares in this region. What has happened is with the framework that's in place, with the science that's, that's been uh, rolled out and with the efficiencies in the team, uh, since 2015 we've controlled nearly 3 million hectares, so over 10%. There's 348 landholders in the prickle area which are actually actively engaged in doing work and that represents about 80% of the landholders in that area and some are doing a lot, some are doing a little bit but uh, when we commenced that ramp up in 2015 the number was around about 11% so it's been a massive increase in participation and because of that the weed is is now being killed much much faster than we can we, it can ever reproduce and even where we've seen some really good seasons like we've seen this year the germination of the weed has been quite minimal what's the threat of prickly acacia so it was introduced for shade and for protein particularly in late season protein however what it tends to do in in high concentrations is outcompete the native uh, mitchell grasses so it it tends to leave the area quite degraded and it takes away the about 2,000 kilograms of, of feed per hectare and, and only gives you about 500 kilograms of feed per hectare. So it takes away a lot more than it gives. So it, it leads to a massive decrease in production. This is a state award and it is a recognition of the fact that where everyone comes together and works collectively together, uh, we can actually achieve really amazing things in, in the results. And what would you like to see going forward? Well, obviously, I'd like to see the collaboration continue. We would like to see continued funding into weed research through the Charter Towers Tropical Weed Research Centre because they've been, um, uh, we feel, a little bit neglected over the last few years. Um, and obviously, we'd like to see more funding to on-ground work so that we can keep rolling up this, uh, this weed. And do you think you have enough funding to continue the work at the moment? I think collectively there is a growing sense of disappointment that we don't. The funding for most programs is coming to an end and we need to, to have solutions to that, particularly in an iconic area like the Lake Air Basin. Operations Manager of Desert Channels Queensland, Simon Wiggins, speaking with Grace Nakamura. It's 13 to 1. This is the Queensland Country Hour. This week on Landline... Heli burning to preserve sandalwood. Growing exotic mushrooms in the old Holden plant. This is the old uh, paint shop where all the Holdens were painted. Uh, this is the next phase, the, the future of our business. And a feedlot first, organic granular fertiliser. That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Let's take a closer look at that story on Landline. Australia's soil is amongst the most nutrient-poor and unproductive in the world. So, of course, our farmers rely on fertilisers. 
with fluctuating prices, ongoing issues with availability and concerns about the impact of synthetic fertilisers on the environment, one feedlot company has taken what they have in excess, that is manure, and turned it into an organic granular fertiliser. Landline's Helena Bachkovsky spoke with Morton Co's Charlie Mort. Feedlotting's a small margin business, so firstly, I've got a responsibility to make sure that the company's making money. So it's a small margin business. We've just had, you know, the markets are in turmoil at the moment. We have to innovate and be different than others. This feedlot alone produces close to 100,000 tonnes of manure a year which is usually regarded as a waste product. One of the problems in a feedlot is you've got to manage the manure, you've got regulatory issues that you've got to manage, and in a dry time, your manure has really only got a a market 40 kilometres around the feedlot. Over the past 18 months, Morton Co have been turning that waste product into a commodity that can travel much further than 40 k's. They have figured out a way to turn the manure into an organic fertiliser in granular form. It's a hard process, like we're still learning, it's not easy, you've got to dry the product out to get it to the right dry matter, it's expensive, we've spent a lot of money on the um, on the whole process, so it's been difficult. So we're only just getting there now. Helping them get there is Kyle Merritt. He heads the research and development arm of the company. The whole process took around four years and that's pretty quick given the complexity of the factory we have at the moment, which is the the first in Australia, starting off with a a pilot plant that was doing 10 kg batches and then moving into a factory that does five tonne an hour. Why would you want to take compost and turn it into a granule? There's plenty of pellets on, on the market. It's another thing to go into a granule. That's a whole level of new complexity which hasn't been done but you need to have a granule so we can be applied through air seeders put up through augers and stored in silos there are other companies in the u.s doing a similar thing but we've taken a slightly different tangent on where the products fit in our agronomic program the products have a lot of carbon in them which is unique to the actual product Um, It also has very good water holding capacity and nutrient holding capacity. So the granules do things that fertiliser. Farms manager Ben Carrigan uses effluent from the feedlot to irrigate crops in trial plots. And for the past two years, he's been using the organic granules. We've done two trials. So we've trialled multiple different approaches of spreading it across the top of the land like a traditional fertiliser and also putting it down with the seed. So it has the ability to activate straight away. The seed can get its roots straight into that and get, get a really good establishment, which is key for the crop. What have you learnt? What have we learnt? We're, um, we're doing, having really good results versus synthetic starter fertiliser. So um, we're able to essentially almost replace that on this farm here, is what we've found. Our yield results have been very pleasing and the return per hectare net cost has been quite good actually. It's something that we've achieved sensational results, especially in wheat. No government funding has gone into Morton Co's environmental commitment. According to Charlie Mort, the operation has been running at a loss for the last 18 months. How much is this trial and error? Uh, oh look, I mean I've got shareholders watching this, so there's been a bit of trial and a bit of error. But look, it's starting to work. We'll get there in the end. How costly are we talking? Look, the plant, it's been running at a loss every month, 18 months now, so 
I think we might break even next month. So what keeps you going? Well, we've got to keep going. So We've got a lot of people involved in the business, so businesses have to keep going, innovating, so that they stay relevant. They have even more expansion plans on the drawing board. The other projects that we're looking at the moment is around inefficiency. So we see a great opportunity, for example, in the Great Barrier Reef to be able to help with nitrogen efficiency and reduce nitrogen inputs and then save on emissions. Very exciting stuff. It is exciting stuff. There's almost too many avenues to go down, but we're trying to concentrate on the biological aspect of what we do because we're dealing with an organic product at the moment. That's where the market niche is and that's where we think the future is. Kyle Merritt ending that report from Landline's Helena Bachkovsky. And, of course, you can see the full version of that story on Sunday at half past 12 on ABC TV. At seven minutes to one, I want to ask you, when you think of a fishing enthusiast, who do you picture? Women's participation in fishing has now outstripped men's in the Northern Territory, at least, even if it's just by a slim margin. And just outside Darwin, Australia's only all-women fishing competition has a huge waiting list. Hundreds clambered to compete despite long days and tough conditions. Nicole Kirby hopped on a boat at Corroboree Billabong to find out more. Had a few dramas. <laughs> Last night it started off with a split eyebrow. One of the marshals KO'd me with the measuring board. Today we've lost a few lures, a few slip knots, dropped a barra, dropped a few toga, got a hook in the arm, got a bit wet. Nothing's really gone as planned. My name's Emily Darwin, born and bred. SWB is an all-women's fishing event which goes for two days, obviously held here at Probably Boulevard. Um, how unique is it? It's unique because it's the only all-women's fishing event in Australia. It's, we don't have mask couples, we don't have male decans, the women do it themselves. Yeah, look, it, nothing can beat it. It's, yeah, good day, hopefully a few more fish and it would make it an even better day. That sun absolutely bites. Oh, I'm Rocky Edwards and I'm from Darwin. We saw the moment you were reeling in a fish. What did it feel like in that moment? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's yes. It's like yes. Best comp of the year. It, I think it just makes it a total different experience when it's just all women. Um, you've got no one but yourselves to rely on. So. No one yelling at you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Usually, yeah, we've got someone down our throat regardless. We can never do anything great. But, um, yeah, I've got my pump-up crew. A lot of girls come out and try it for the first time. They're, you know, new to fishing, lacking a little bit of confidence, and it's a great space to be with other girls. There's still, you know, that stigma up here, you know, that women can't do it all, that we, we can't back boats and we can't certainly take the boat out without our husbands being there but you know we've been doing this for a long time now and um, we certainly can. started fishing on this billabong in a women's comp. I couldn't fish, I couldn't boat but there was opportunity to go out with male skippers that would teach you how to fish and some would teach you how to use a boat so over a few years I decided I liked it and I 
thought, well, if I want to do more of this, I'm going to have to get my own boat and I'm going to have to, you know, learn a lot more about fishing. So here I am 20 years later still doing it. Was there a moment you knew that you were hooked? Yeah, day one. <laughs> I caught six fish in my first ever outing and it was day one of a, of a fishing competition for women. So I thought, oh gosh, I like this. What do I need to do? And it's like, go get your own gear. There's now more women fishers than men in the Northern Territory. Does that surprise you? It does You're... not surprise me at all that there's more women than men fishing in the NT. Why though? Like, why is the Northern Territory different? We're more laid back, aren't we? Our lifestyle, yeah. And we enjoy it. It takes your husband to take you out once. We get out to amazing places. Our backyard to play in is pretty spectacular. Fishing and hunting is just goes part and parcel with it and I think that's what encourages people to go out. So if you're a young lady and you don't do those things and you, you meet a young man that does, you soon have to. It's just part of the culture here now that everybody fishes or hunts or boat. Hey Rowita and I'm from the Gold Coast. So there seems to be more camaraderie and friendship amongst female fishers up in the NT and they'll help each other out, whereas in Queensland, you very rarely, you'll see a few female fishers, but generally with male fishers, not generally in a boat of three, let alone 45 teams of 200 women. It's amazing. The Northern Territory is streets ahead because now when you go to a boat ramp, you just don't see the guys going fishing for the weekend. You see families, you see you know, babies, you see women go fishing together, you see couples. It's, it's not a common thing just to see men after men after men launching boats anymore. And I think that man's best kept secret isn't a secret anymore. <laughs> I work in a tackle store. And, you know, I see women walk through in their business clothes, their stilettos, with their gun bags, with their fishing rods, their reels to get serviced and stuff. And it, you just think, wow, you know. And on weekends you see Dad with all the kids because she's gone fishing with her girlfriends. It's just pretty cool. You know, some nights we have, uh, we have uh, ladies' nights and we have to shut the door because there's 100 women banging the door down. You know, just really uh, big participation numbers. and. And I think when you've got girlfriends that fish, you just go along and go, hey, this is cool, it's empowering, you feel good, you can drive a, a boat or go fishing and catch fish. It's like an addiction. Yeah, like you say, once you start reeling in those first few fish, you're like, how can I get more of this? <laughs> the bloodlust. <laughs> it is On that bit. note, we've got to go fishing. Yeah, yeah. all right, we'll release you. That report from Nicole Kirby, and if you're heading out on a boat or down to a riverbank this weekend, I do hope you manage to get one on the hook and uh, get addicted yourself to fishing. That's it for the Queensland Country Hour today and for the week. Thank you for your company across the week. I'll be back again on Monday from midday. Of course, you can get the latest in all your rural news needs online. Just head for abc.net.au slash rural. And from Monday at a quarter past six, your rural reporter will join you with the latest as well. In the meantime, I hope the rest of your Friday treats you well and you get the most out of the weekend, however you're spending it. Right now, though, it's time for you to get the latest in ABC News. It's one o'clock.